If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Genesis for our Old Testament reading, which comes from Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27, we'll read verses 1 through 13. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may, be, may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feed me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Read Matthew 27, sorry, chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. This is God's Word. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Turn me in prayer as we ask his blessing. Almighty God, how good you are to us. Uh, so many blessings that you've extended to us, Lord. Uh, so many gifts that you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we've We've abused so many of your gifts, Father, and uh, this to our great shame and discredit. And yet, you made known the abundance of your love, even for us, in sending forth the Lord Jesus. 
As we pray, Lord, that you would exalt him even now, that you would uh, hold us fast even as you convict, that you would keep us from sinking into despair even as you press the truth of your word upon our hearts. That you would strengthen us in the assurance of your love that we might be strengthened in our faith to walk and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he calls us to do. How wonderful that you and you alone cleanse from the pollution of sin. As you've pardoned us from sin's guilt, so also you cleanse us. And we look forward to the day when we shall be saved to sin no more. Lord, build us up in this and be pleased to make known the greatness of your name. Now, even as we feel our vulnerabilities in the light of your word. We pray this in Christ. Amen. If you were to fault Tolkien for anything uh, in his great novels comprising the Lord of the Rings, it would be that Aragorn is too good. Somehow, Aragorn manages to surpass even King Arthur as an ideal. Arthur was the ideal king. He was an excellent king. And yet even he had done egregious wrong. If you know the story of King Arthur, you know that Mordred is his son. His son by way of a sexual sin, indiscretion, call it what you will, with Morgoz. And this illicit union between Arthur and Morgoz was Arthur's eventual downfall. We're supposed to hear echoes of another idyllic king who fell in that, David, who sinned in this one matter. I think Chronicles puts it that way. The matter of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, and this too was the downfall of his house. In some ways, Tolkien wants us to understand that Aragorn surpasses them all. (laughs) Arthur, David, I don't think that's fair of him to do. (laughs) But I'm sympathetic because there is a king who surpasses them all. But he was no mere mortal. Psalm 24 asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God's law calls not just for right action, but for pure desires. Holy desires. Because God is pure. His character is on display in the law. God is pure. God is holy. He is light. In him there is no darkness, no, none at all. It is wonderful beyond telling that the Lord Jesus Christ 
was and is pure in all his thinking, desiring, and doing. He saw the world with pure eyes feeding a pure heart. It's difficult to fathom our king's purity, but it is a blessing that's worth searching out. It's even more difficult to fathom his purity given his persistent nearness to sinners. Lancelot had a son, Galahad, who was pure, but he removed himself from everyone. And that was how he maintained his purity. The Lord Jesus Christ is pure in the midst of filth. He's not pure because he removes himself from sinners. He walks with them. He reclines at table with them. He touches them in absolute purity and goodness. Consider some of the scenes of intimacy that the gospel records for us. The woman who bathes his feet, kisses them, anoints them with her tears, dries them with her hair, nearness with a most blessed and wonderful purity. The woman at the well, a promiscuous woman. (laughs) The well itself recalls scenes of betrothal. Jacob and Rachel, Moses and the daughters of Ruel. And the Lord lays bare her restless and sinful heart in that very matter. And he tells her that he alone can give the water that satisfies. All of it in perfect purity. That's incredible. And it is amazingly refreshing. There's one who is clean and pure and looks at you with that cleanness. And purity, ennobling, exalting. We must feel the depth of our uncleanness in the light of this text. There is no way around it. The way forward is through. But we do so rejoicing that there is one of pure hands and clean heart. And not only that, there is one whose purity cleanses. There's one whose embrace is holy. There's a popular song with a line I rather like. You might not care for it, but I like it. The way you hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me makes me feel so holy, 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 holy. Thank you, Justin Bieber, for that line. (laughs) Or if you prefer the hymns, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I don't know the specifics of the filth of your heart, the filth of your hands when it comes to sex and the sins that we've discovered in this area. But I do know that there is truly a fountain which truly cleanses. There is one who truly pardons. There is one who truly embraces sinners. Not of just socially acceptable sins. But of actual defiling sins. And who makes us clean as pure snow. And who will only ever embrace in holy love. So let's hear the word of this king. First, he tells us plainly that adultery is sin. That's how he starts. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Here, even more than murder, it seems like we have reason to stop and say the bare letter of the law condemns us. The Lord is not saying that adultery isn't a sin or adultery is somehow the same as the lust of the heart with respect to its dreadful consequences and devastating destructive power. He's not setting adultery aside. He's affirming that it's sin, even in the bare letter of the law. And it's worth noting that we live in a time and a place where adultery is increasingly common. It's all too common. And while it's slightly less common in the church, it still takes place with shameful regularity. I'm sure you can number any number of high-profile ministers or cases where a disqualifying sin of adultery has taken place. You've probably seen it happen in your churches. You've probably been witness to the devastating effects. Perhaps you're even party to the sin. And so before we even press into the heart of the matter, we're forced to confess that we are a sinful mess, especially when it comes to sex. Now make no mistake, sex is a gift. It's one of the plain indications of how rotten the situation is that even as a church we forfeited the maturity and the capacity to speak of sex as God's design as his good gift and not succumb to this overreaction to a world that is admittedly perversed perverted this in all manner of way and our hearts are similarly indicted but scripture doesn't shrink back from it it still retains a this is a gift from God. It's God's design, but it's to be received in His time and in His season and in His way. Sex is not the problem. Our sinful and distorted hearts generating sinful and distorted views of God's good gifts, sex included, this is the problem. But it's worth asking, what would the Lord say to the literal adulterer? 
the Lord encountered adulterers. The woman at the well was an adulterer. What did the Lord tell her in John 4? How did he address her? He did not address her and say, yours is a hopeless case. He said, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) He said, if you knew who was standing before you, if you understood the broken cisterns from which you were relentlessly trying to drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. He invited her to consider that whatever satisfaction she was pursuing, going from man to man to man, had only brought her to this point as an outcast, alone, passed from each and yet still not content, still not satisfied. And he says, I can give you living water. Water is a powerful image. It cleanses. It quenches thirst. It refreshes. Mark how that would have spoken to her heart. She was an outcast. There's a reason why she's there at the height of the sun's power. Nobody draws water at that time. The well is a social gathering place. Nobody's going to the well at the height of the day because it's difficult to remain in the sun for that long doing that time of work. She's there when no one else is there because she's an outcast. She's rejected. She's been rejected. She's defiled. She's dirty. And he offers her water that cleanses. She's moved from man to man seeking some kind of satisfaction. She likely knows not what. And he says, I can quench thirst. I can give that which satisfies. She's weary drawing water at the height of the day in need of refreshment. And he says, I can refresh. All that she needed that she had no idea she was really looking for, Christ says, I possess. We're not invited to downplay the darkness of the sin of adultery just because the Lord indicts the lust of the heart. Adultery destroys families. It rends souls. It is a treachery and a betrayal that is dreadful. If you've done it, I hope you're weeping. If you're thinking about doing it, don't. There's nothing down that road. You're not going to be satisfied. Read Anna Karenina. She dies in the end. Death is at the end of that road. Destruction is at the end of that road. I would not remove the weight of the magnitude of that sin. I would extol the glory of Christ on display in the mercy that he showed that woman. Ask of me. I have living, I am living water. If you've literally committed adultery, repent. Rend your heart, not your garment. And then run to the only one who can redeem from that level of brokenness.
that depth of destruction. But it's not just the literal adulterer who needs cleansing and forgiveness, is it? Christ exposes all of our hearts. Lust is a sin. That's what he would have us see. The Lord dismantles all of our notions of self-righteousness. I said last week, the tendency of the heart is to constantly profile what we haven't done as that which proves we're righteous. Well, I haven't killed a man. (laughs) Well, at least I haven't lit my marriage on fire yet by committing adultery. See, I'm pretty good. We said that the problem with that is there's always going to be something that you haven't done because the Lord is kind. And He keeps us from utter depravity. So that way of delusional righteousness is always open to people. There's always going to be something you can say, look, I haven't done that yet. He would spare us from such a foolish path. He says the seventh commandment isn't really interested at the end of the day, ultimately, just with keeping you from executing your desire. It's interested in highlighting that your desire is the problem. That you desire the wrong thing. What does he say? I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me say first here, I am struck by how he ruins men. I mean, he just levels them. Now, don't get me wrong. Women can lust, do lust. There's plenty of evidence. It's striking to me, though, that if your purpose was to humble an entire room of men, you could hardly pick two more appropriate sins than anger and lust. The church needs godly men. The world needs godly men. It is beyond plain to me that churches thrive, households thrive when godly men lead. It's indisputable at this point. I'm not even going to contend with that proposition. The Lord would have a host of godly men following him. I also believe that there is no such thing as a godly man without a deep and fundamental humility. Which simply means that if you are a man and the Lord loves you, he's going to break you. He's going to break you down. He's not going to rest until you know that you're poor in spirit. Until you know that no good thing dwells in you. And out of a sight and a sense of your native heinousness, you cannot raise your eyes to heaven but stand afar and cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what makes a Christian gentle. Men. For that's the man who's patient with others. That's the man who's tender towards others. 
That's the man who's understanding towards others. That's the man who's eager to see others come to a sight and a sense of the Lord's mercy that they might also flee into his holy embrace. I wish that that's how Presbyterian men were known. I wish that were the reputation of men in the OPC. I think we have some work to do. Men earnestly seek this from our king. For yourself, for your sons, women Pray to the king that God would raise up that type of man in our churches and in our homes. I assure you it is in your and your children's best interest. And it starts with truth humbling us to our very core. So what does he condemn here? When he says one who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Calvin explains that this means anyone who looks and begins to admit sinful plans, thoughts, and designs about the one upon whom they are gazing. Who looks and begins to admit sinful thoughts, plans, and designs for the one upon whom they are looking. So let me say briefly, this is not bare acknowledgement that this or that person is beautiful. This is not bare acknowledgement that this or that person is handsome. Scripture itself invites us into a holy appreciation of beauty of any number of men and women. It's striking. Sarah, she's beautiful. Rebecca, beautiful. Rachel, beautiful. Esther, beautiful. Joseph, beautiful. Moses, beautiful. David, beautiful. Daniel, beautiful. Psalm 45 calls all of Israel to sing in holy appreciation of the beauty of her king and the beauty of his queen. Queen. Scripture does not condemn Acknowledgement and appreciation of beauty. If there's room for holy anger in the face of sin, there's room for holy appreciation in the face of true beauty. But just as in the case of anger, it also seems wise to acknowledge the speed with which our flesh perverts good things. And so we do well to take heed of our vulnerabilities. Our Lord doesn't condemn Acknowledgement and appreciation. He condemns sinful and greedy demands and possession, especially of what has not been gifted unto us. Granted unto us. Indeed, forbidden unto us. So what does this sinfulness look like? It looks like pornography and the outright objectification of human beings. I mean, you can say it for what objectification is almost too nice of a word. It is the dehumanization of human beings. That's what that is. To objectify a human being is to dehumanize a human being. 
Because we are body, soul creatures. And to reduce someone to a body upon whom lust is to be slaked is to defy the testimony that this person is the image of God. Body and soul. Spirit and flesh. I trust at this point in our history there is no need to go into the statistics on pornography. I trust there's no need to rehearse for you the heinousness of the worlds in which pornography is meshed, enmeshed. I wish there were an easy solution. I wish the production and distribution of pornography were punishable by law. And I don't usually say much about politics. But that also wouldn't fix it, would it? Man would find a way. Why? Because lust is symptomatic to something more basic. Sin and discontentment. (laughs) Lust is a symptom of a larger disorder, our relentless discontentment, or if you like it, our relentless ill-at-easedness with ourselves and with the Lord. It is, nothing, it is another attempt to paper over that fundamental and relentless testimony that we are not well that we are searching for something that we can't find. And even if we've tried that well a thousand times before and we know there's nothing there, so deranged are we that we keep going back to it. That's bonkers. And yet we style ourselves intelligent. Don't we? Isn't that sort of... I'm getting amped up. I feel it. The contemporary myth, we're so sophisticated. We're so sophisticated. Look at all of our gadgets. We're so sophisticated. And yet this raging log is in the eye of an entire culture that has the audacity to make any moral pronouncements whatsoever as it subsidizes an entire industry that trades in human trafficking, pedophilia, We're all guilty. It also looks like flirting. D.A. Carson argues for a reading, anyone who looks at a woman to make her lust. It's a grammatical possibility here. I won't go into the details of Greek grammar. But a pronoun can serve as a subject for an infinitive. Are you convinced? (laughs) If anyone looks at a woman to make her lust, acts in such a way towards someone to provoke desire for the self, flirting, (laughs) right? Isn't that what it is? There's a scene in Anna Karenina towards the end. Where Anna meets Levin for the first time. Levin comes and he's struck by her. Levin's already married Kitty. Please read Anna Karenina. It's going to make things like this so much easier. (laughs) 
Lana, Levin's already married Kitty. He has a wonderful life. He has a rich life. He's one. He's the hero. And then towards the end, he meets Anna, and Anna has some power over him. Anna's so charming, so beautiful, that she's able to reduce him. Such that he's sort of beholder. He's like, wow, wow. And she loves it. We love it, right? When we can get people into the orbit of our power, whether it's physically, intellectually, with our charm, our social graces, our sparkling wit. As long as I can inflame something in you that bows at my feet, well, I've won. Because I love being a God. And so do you. It looks like our flirting. It also looks like our vain imaginations. Certainly that's true with reference to physical lust. The mind is a powerful mechanism. But I think what this exposes isn't just a physical dimension. We violate what our Lord is teaching here when we feel our own discontentment with our own spouses or circumstances such that we begin to covet another. That's actually the verb he uses there. If anyone looks upon a woman covetously, it's the same verb in the 10th commandment. So he's combining the 7th and the 10th commandment here. If anyone who looks upon someone with desire, desiring to have it. So again, if you're a woman, perhaps you don't struggle with the lust of the flesh. I I didn't quite know what to do with it. It struck me as something that is not exclusive to men, but less frequent in woman in terms of the particular address that he's making here. But I would hate to leave you ladies without conviction. And so I think the particularly female iteration of this is, I wish my husband were more successful. Uh, I wish my husband were more sensitive I wish my husband were more understanding. I wish his interests were closer to mine. I wish he were taller. I wish he were stronger. I wish he were healthier like so-and-so. Now again, just as it's not exclusively men who physically lust, it's not exclusively women who long for the reconfiguration of their spouse according to their understanding of what seems good in a mate. And that's the heart of it, isn't it? That's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Whether it's physical or emotional, it trades on a fundamental lie that you know what you need and you don't. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's wonderful that God gives us what we need and calls us to be content in that. He says, all of this is the seed of adultery, the fountain of adultery. Take no solace in the fact that it hasn't fully flowered if the seed is there. Lament the seed. Lament the fountain. 
Rejoice that he's kept you from the destructive course that is the full flowering of that seed, but howl over the seed and find a doctor because you're sick. The most tragic element of all of this is that what is so common to us day by day taking place is really just a variation of the old serpent lie. That what God hasn't given us is always and certainly better than what he has given us. Isn't that the lie? What God hasn't given us is better than what he has given us. And therefore we've got to disregard him and take it. I said that the word was the same word that appears in the 10th commandment. It's also the same word that appears in Genesis 3. And she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. The heart of the matter is we covet, we lust, because we're not content with what the Lord has given us. Right? I tried to drill down to the heart. Isn't that the heart? I mean, there's all sorts of other things that are layered over that, but that's the heart. And that's doubly humbling for us as Christians because what the Lord has given us is nothing less than Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does He say to do? He closes with the famous exhortation. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Notice first that he makes no room for blame shifting. He doesn't say, yeah, the problem is with that the world dresses too provocatively. (laughs) Yeah, the real problem is you've got a difficult marriage. Yeah, the real problem is that your neighbor really is quite attractive and she's been coming on to you. He doesn't say the problem is the pervasiveness of technology. The problem is the prostitution industry, which incidentally would have been thriving at that time. He says the problem is you. (laughs) You're the problem. The problem lies with you. I'm sure by how potent this is because we have a tendency to blame shift in this matter, in all matters, but in this one uniquely. Right? I know you do. I know that you're glazed over, but it's uncomfortable. You just got to sit in it. You got to sit in it. You got to sit in it because that's where life is. Just sit in it. You, You could be praying too. You should be praying too. We blame shift. We blame others for the way they dress. We blame the culture for hypersexualization of everything. We blame spouses for failing to live up to whatever standard we've adopted. We blame God because he put us in the situation. And even he made me this way. I know you've done it. Because it's what the flesh says. You're not hiding from anybody. And the problem is, with the exception of the last blame towards God, the other ones, he actually got a point. <laughs> it is sad and difficult to be surrounded by the hypersexualization of all things. The image itself suggests difficulty, that this is difficult. 
It is difficult to live in the hypersexualization of all things. It would be wrong to downplay the extent to which this brave new sexual world has made living in this world with purity difficult. But say all that you can and you should about all those things. The fundamental fact still remains. The problem resides with me. Circumstances don't create sin. Circumstances reveal sin. Write that on your fridges. Nobody creates sin in you. They are occasions for your sinful heart to be made known. So we start with owning this. We start with acknowledging the depth of our corruption. We start with humble brokenness saying, you have not made me this way. I've plunged myself into ruin and filth and contortedness. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. You know next that this is not literal, but it is serious. His instruction is not literal, but it is serious. That seems important to say. Some in the church's history have taken this literally. Supposedly, Origen, the controversial church father, actually castrated himself because of this text. It is possible that hand here is a euphemism for the male organ. That's what D.A. Carson argues. It's also that it's possibly a reference to auto-stimulation. So he's not pulling any punches here. But in either case, he's not calling for literal mutilation of the body as if that's going to solve it. In fact, and this is important here, it's sinful to self-harm. Especially if it's a way of atoning for sin. Why? Because the only wounds that can atone are those of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only blood that can cleanse flows from the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Not yours, not mine, not my blood, not your blood. Our sin, His blood. So then the death of the body here has to be heard in the light of what Paul explains in Romans 8. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's explaining what this means. But just because it's spiritual does not mean it's not brutal. It will feel brutal. The first flickers of those thoughts of discontentment, yeah, it would be better if he were like that. Oh, that's nice. Resting your heart from those things will feel like death. To remove yourself from a situation where things are going well in a way that feels almost effortless and rather empowering and enlivening. To rest yourself from that situation will feel like death. But when it's done in faith, flying to the sun, it is something death-like that leads to life. Self-denial, cross, life. Death, resurrection. There's no magic button for resisting temptation. 
There's no magic formula for resisting temptation. Exercising lust and discontentment is a symptom of our spiritual unhealth. And our larger vulnerability to deception continually. What's the ultimate solution? Spiritual health. (laughs) How do you get spiritually healthy? The same way you get physically healthy, by running. I'm amazed at how frequently with reference to sexual temptation, the advice is, run, fly, you fools. You're not going to beat this one. Run, run. It's not just running from something, though. Flee, flee, flee. Flee. Run as if your life depended on. Notice that he is not above setting the fire of hell as that which fuels your flight. Run. There is a monster chasing you. But he doesn't just say run away. He says come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. There's nothing quite like lust to show that we're really restless. The images that the Old Testament uses are actually quite striking. They're like a donkey in heat, panting after everyone passes along, restless, restless, restless. Come to me. Okay, I'll give you rest. I'll give you bread that satisfies. I'll give you water that satisfies. You've been drinking from broken cups. None of it satisfies. It's left you worse for wear. Isn't that right? Sin always overpromises, underdelivers. There is nothing about lust that realizes what it's promised. Nothing. It is the opposite of what it promises. There is one who gives what he promises. There's one who satisfies and gives rest. I am your refuge. I am your strength. I am your shield. I am your shelter. I am your defender. I am your protector. I am your deliverer. I am your friend. I am your merciful high priest. I am your older brother. I am your husband. I'll never turn aside. Run to him as soon as you can. And know the embrace which cleanses and empowers in holy love as nothing else can. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, blessed be your name. Break us down to build us up, O Lord. Magnify your Son, the Holy One of Israel. We ask in His name. Amen.